Good evening and welcome to tonight's Betachin class. Uh, due to Yeshiva week, and as ironic as this sounds, since everyone during Yeshiva week is not in Yeshiva and everyone is out of town, uh, this is a recording in front of my mirror, um, in front of my lonely self, or maybe my very full self, me, myself, and Irene. Um, it's a joke. So uh, glad to have you here, and uh, we'll do a share this week to keep us going, and then God willing, next week we'll resume our in-person class. Um, as per always, I just want to start with a quick disclaimer, is that my intention here is to encourage the discussion around and about the Tachim. I share thoughts and ideas that I understand as best as I can understand them. Um, in advance, I ask for your forgiveness if I misquote, misrepresent, missthewholepoint.com. Uh, welcome to hear your feedback. My Intention is purely to work on my own betachon and to encourage others to do the same. Tonight, we're going to continue in chapter three. Uh, we're going to continue um, discussing or moving into the discussion, I should say, where we ended right uh, last week, right before it, is why righteous people suffer. And we'll start with quoting some sukkim on the matter, and then we will, the Shire Betachon, will attempt to give a few different reasons and insight as to why that might be. And of course, it's the first part of a two-part question is why do the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer? Uh, sorry, righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. A little play, a little tongue tie there. So we'll start with why do the righteous suffer tonight and then next week we will resume with why the wicked prosper. As is our custom, we'll start with the letter of the Rebbe from the book In Good Hands. It's a great collection of letters in English written uh by the Rebbe and the translated by Sichas in English. I suggest you add it to your repertoire of Betachin learning if you haven't done so already. We're going to read the letter on page 66. Shalom of Racha, greetings and blessings. I received your letter dated Wednesday, the 34th day of the Eimer, in which you describe the state of your business affairs, your considerable debts, etc., etc. You write further that you have a possibility of selling some of your properties but you find yourself unable to decide alone what you should do. Above all, it appears from your letter that you are dispirited, so that as a matter of course, your trust in God has weakened. The phrase I just used was above all. As it's stated in our holy sources in general, and in the literature of Hasidus in particular, everything depends on betachin, the attribute of trust. A man's trust is the measuring stick of the extent to which his material affairs are bound and fused with the Creator. If this fusion is complete, it is certainly impossible for anything to be lacking, because in the worlds above, the concept of lacking is utterly non-existent. In accordance with your request, I mentioned your name in connection with the fulfillment of your needs when I visited the holy resting place of my revered father-in-law, the Friedrich Rebbe. That said, since you ask for my advice, I hold that you should focus on toiling on yourself to fortify your trust in God to the greatest extent possible. In truth, Having the attribute of trust means that even if according to the laws of nature, one sees no way out. In one mind, it is beyond all doubt that everything will be good in a way that is actually visible and manifest to fleshly eyes with regard to having an ample livelihood, sound health, and so on. From the perspective of the world above, considerations of nature are quite immaterial. Accordingly, once a person raises himself up and adopts a stance, that is even slightly above the ground, that is, he brings himself to the realization that since he is a believing Jew, 
he is utterly certain that there's no master over him but God alone. He can draw down and actualize this certainty here too, so that in this physical world too, considerations of nature will not affect him adversely, God forbid. I firmly hope to God that if you will only fortify your trust to the utmost, you will immediately see a change in the providence which governs your material business affairs, and your situation will begin to approve and to proceed from good to even better. In addition, it would be appropriate to immediately begin giving tzedakah as you used to and increase your accustomed donations at least slightly. I look forward to hearing good news from you and all the above. With blessings for material success, and may the teachings of the Alter Rebbe be fulfilled in your life, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu blessed be he grants Jews materiality, and they transform materiality into spirituality. One of my favorite letters on the topic, I think we may have read this letter before in some of the earlier classes, but obviously you can see in the words of the Rebbe, and this letter, by the way, was in, uh, written in 1952, the 25th day of the month of Sivan. He's very clear as to what the outlook of Betachen is. It's not that we should have faith that Hashem does everything that's for the best for us. It is Betachen, meaning that we trust that God will actually do that which we want him to do, even if there's absolutely no hope in the physical world or nothing pointing us to believe such a thing, where our hishtadla, so to speak, is not pointing to success that we're looking for. If we can lift ourselves up, I think the words that he used in the letter was raise ourselves above the ground, even slightly, taking a stance that is even slightly above the ground. If we can do that in our betachen to Hashem, and everything in this material world can be lifted also into above the realms of, quote, nature, end quote. So a very poignant and strong letter from the Rebbe from the very beginning, 1952, encouraging his chassidim and those who seek his advice to adopt the concept of betachen and do so complete and wholeheartedly. So I wanted to share a story that I heard, actually I heard my father repeat it to me. I, I don't recall where he uh, what the source of the story is from, but I, I did verify the gist of the story. So if I am a little bit sluggish in some of the details, if someone has the rest of the story, please feel free to reach out. But there was a family who was having a seum in their home, and uh, seum sefer and there was a young woman who was in attendance of the seum sefer which is obviously a, a very big celebration, it's a big mitzvah, it's a big simcha, and we're all familiar that when there is a CM Sefer Torah, there's generally a community get-together and music and dancing, and the shul is brought from the home usually to the shul, etc., the Torah rather. So there was a young woman in attendance at a CM Sefer Torah who unfortunately had some sort of aneurysm or some other health issue, and she literally passed away at the event. I guess she fell and something happened where she her, her life, uh, her soul ascended to heaven right at the event. And obviously it was, uh, it was quite uh, a, a different tone in, in activity um, when everyone was there, etc. And, and left a, a deep pain for the host and hostess who were, you know, who, who, who paid for and I guess wrote the Torah. So they wrote a letter to the Rebbe asking the Rebbe, or maybe they went by dollars, I, I don't know exactly, um, and they basically asked the question, what did they do wrong that here they were celebrating a big mitzvah in their home and their house was chosen for this young woman to unfortunately 
uh, her life to come to an end and her soul to be reunited with her creator at their event, at their simcha. What could they possibly have done wrong to deserve such a thing? And the Rebbe responded, not what have you done wrong, but what have you done right? That here there was a young woman that was about to return her soul to the creator. She could have been on a bus. She could have been on the street. She could have been shopping. She could have been in many, many different places surrounded by the furthest thing from fellow Jews, the furthest thing from a community of fellow Jews, and the furthest thing from a CM Sefer Torah. And yet you were chosen to, to have her experience that simcha, that mitzvah, as the last thing that her soul did in this earth before it went above. Um, and obviously, you know, the connection that, that came to mind for me personally, and I, this story just popped into my head. So, you know, I, I'd like to, to uh, you know, I believe everything is divine providence. So when I think about why the righteous suffer, um, obviously it's a real question. And the righteous, you know, that, that we'll talk about in Chayvis and in general, when we think about it, is generally tzaddikim. You know, why do tzaddikim suffer when the, when the wicked prosper? Or those that make strong efforts, and I think what's uh, what's an interesting point about that story is that you know not everything is always what it seems, and even when it's very very harsh, it's always the lens that you look through it, and it's just another reminder how you know the cup is half empty, half full, and yes, we're here on a mission to learn and to gain the level of betachin that we trust that everything will be absolutely positive, and even when we see something that seems to be completely the opposite of what should be a positive event. There's some, a great story of the Rebbe kind of peeling back a layer and showing how, yes, this young woman's soul did ascend to heaven. She did pass on. But what an honor that that should be the last thing that her soul did in this earth was celebrate a CMC for Torah surrounded by Jews. Um, another thought I want to share is today was a Tuesday, Parshas um, Peshalach. So today was, I'm sure if you have WhatsApp, you probably received about three to 4,000 text messages about Parsha Saman, likely with an art scroll PDF, reminding you that um, if you want to be a billionaire, you should say Parsha Saman. I am not making a joke, nor am I making light of it. Um, there's actually an interesting insight as far as Chabad's concerned as to whether we do say it daily or we don't say it daily. Um, I believe there's one place that says by the altar of a Shulchan Aruch one thing and then the Siddur says something else um, or something of the sort. It's actually quoted in the book of um, Gates of Trust, but we'll save that for another time. But what I do want to say is while, while it's, a, you know, it's definitely a school and there are plenty of Roshayim who, who point to it and guarantee it and say that this is the sure fire way to succeed uh, as far as a segula for parnasa the, the one thing you that is for sure is that the concept of betachen was the the, the lesson of betachen and, and really showing the jews what the concept was all about begins right there in the midbar when the man begins to descend this idea that hashem provides for us and he provides for us daily and that storing for tomorrow will be of no worth etc all of this is the foundational cornerstone, or the foundation and the cornerstone of the concept of betachin, is that we are meant to do our part, but having anxiety and fear 
and worry about what will be tomorrow, etc., is contrary to the point because Hashem gives us every single day, literally man from heaven. Back then it was man. Today it's a paycheck. It's a stock market. It's a real estate deal. It's a a medicine. It's an introduction to someone. Whatever it is that you're looking for, it's the same source. It's the same you know source code. It's all coming from God, and we trust that He will give it to us every day, like He did and began to teach us at the very beginning of our nationhood, um, right when we left Mitzrayim, that process began. Of, I have you, I'm your loving father, I'm your parent, and I'm going to make sure that you're fed every single day. And we know that in Tillim, there's many different sukkim that David HaMelech constantly is discussing how he's like a child who's being soothed by, by its mother, who's being fed by its mother. And there are many Rishonim and, and all types of, of different commentary that discuss that when you look at a baby and a baby is nursing from its mother, it's absolutely content. It's not worried about where its food is coming from tomorrow. It's not worried about where dinner is coming from because right now it's being held by its loving parent, by its loving mother, and it's being given all of its needs. And this is exactly how God treated us in the desert as soon as we became a nation at the very beginning by holding us as a child and giving us every day and soothing us and telling us, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't have anxiety. Don't have fear. Don't be thinking about, well, what's going to be next week? As is a common challenge that we all have, company included, is something will happen, something positive. You know, you need something, you get it. And then the first thing that happens or within the next five minutes, oh God, but next week I'll need this. And I don't have that yet. Oh God, here we go again. And it's like, you just got what you needed now. And the quote-unquote natural instinct of our man, kind, or also known as the Eight Sahara, tells you, hey, yeah, it's good that you have what you need for today. That's fantastic. Thank you, Hashem. We'll dive in. We'll say thank you. Give a little stucco. What about tomorrow? What about next Tuesday? The mortgage is due in three weeks from now. You know, I know you just paid the car payment, but now the mortgage is due. How are you going to survive? So we have to remember that it all starts from man in heaven. And um, it's, a, you know, it, it, it's definitely the cornerstone of foundation. So... If you haven't said it, you should say it. You should learn it from time to time. And all we're doing here is trying to get to the level of literally seeing the manna from heaven on a daily basis as we work and continue to work on our betachim. And I want to share one last story before we go into the Sefer, something uh, beautiful that I read today, um, again about a tzaddik, somebody who worked tremendously on their betachim. Um, there's a whole Sefer that uh, was translated by Art Scroll in English um, about, about, about his story and you know, what he teaches about Patachin, and that is the altar of Novardok, and I think I'm pronouncing that city name correctly, and if I'm not, I apologize in advance. And he was somebody that was, was tr- a tremendous Baal Betachin. In fact, I believe he would sign his name Baal Betachin, and he worked on uh, on it constantly, and he had a yeshiva, um, um, and he was um, a master of betachem. And there's a story that he needed to take a train ride somewhere, but he had no money to take the train. So he decided to, you know, he, he tapped into his betachem, and he went on the train, and he sat down. And as he's sitting in coach, he realizes that if he has betachem and Hashem, why is he sitting in coach? He may as well sit in first class. He doesn't have the money for the ticket. He's relying on Hashem to take care of it for him, 100%. He's confident. He gets on the train. He goes, he sits down in first class. He sits down next to a, a Jew. 
Jew looks at him and says, you know, he recognizes that there's a rabbi here, and rabbi does not look like he has any means to pay for his train ticket. So he asks him, how can the rabbi afford to pay for the ticket for this train ride? To which he replies, I can't. I trust in Hashem that he's going to provide for me. As the conductor walks around and he starts to ask for tickets, as was done back in the day and still done today in some European countries, if you travel there, the conductor comes to, to the two places. He says, you have a ticket. And the wealthy Jew offers immediately and gladly to pay for the altar's ticket in first class. And he does. After he pays for the ticket, the conductor moves on. He turns to the altar and says, well, what are you going to do next time? I'm not going to be here to uh, take care of you. And he said, no, you think I was relying on you? I wasn't relying on you. I was relying on Hashem. This has nothing to do with you. Thank you. It's kind of you. You're his messenger. But this was me and Hashem um, straight on. So I think that's just another beautiful story of the level of betachem that we're all striving to get to. And even though sometimes it may feel like we're the furthest thing from it, first of all, we can all reach these moments at times in our lives. And in certain experiences, when we have that moment, like the Alter Rebbe talks about being a Bainini, is that you can be a Bainini even for a second, even for a minute, even for an hour. When you make a decision, you know, it says, how do you, uh, how do you turn your life around? Is just you know turn your body the other way, just face a different direction. That's how you start a you know a new path. So we can all have these moments of great betachin in 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 our life, and hopefully more than just once in our life, but many times in our lives. And ultimately, we hope to reach a level where we are constantly um, floating. And I say the word floating because I'm referencing the Rebbe's words in the letter we started off with, which is if you can just raise yourself even a little bit above the ground meaning where you're not entrapped by what the world around you, which is all, as we know, uh, there as a dira betachtainim to create a, a, a place for Hashem to dwell. You can raise yourself a little bit above that. There's magic that happens. Anyways, that being said, we're going to go into the book. We're in uh, Gates of Trust, page 91, top of the page. I'll read it in English, as I will not try to outdo the translation. The righteous suffer and wicked prosper. If a person will say, we do see some righteous people whose sustenance only becomes available to them after much hard work and toil, while we find many sinners who are at peace and live good and pleasant lives. How can this be? When we explained earlier that the righteous are not required to make efforts to pursue their livelihood. So in the last couple of weeks, we explained how, why is it that we have to earn a living by making an effort? So Hashem wanted in his, in his because he's so wise for us to be, involved in a, in a work where we can make decisions to serve him, to do the right thing, combine it with learning Torah. It's a perfect life. We have everything we need. But when you have a, a tzaddik, somebody who's not pulled down by the, by the, by the temptations of, of the gray area or temptations of things that you shouldn't be doing at all, that type of person who's a tzaddik doesn't have to, to, to make a, a shtadik, doesn't have to make an effort necessarily to uh, get their needs met. But here we see, as we all know, there's plenty of uh, righteous people who suffer and suffer quite badly at that. So how can this be? So we will respond by saying that the prophets and the pious ones have already preceded us in questioning the matter. And now we'll quote some different psukim before he gives his own reasons as to what it says in Tanakh, etc. For example, it says in Jeremiah, why has the way of the wicked prosper? Another prophet says in Habakkuk, why do you show me iniquity and look upon mischief without repaying the wicked? Plunder and violence. 
are before me, and the one who bears quarrel and strife endures. And he continues in the following Pasuk, For a wicked man surrounds the righteous. And he said, Why are you silent when a wicked man swallows up one more righteous than he? So here's two examples of Sukkim basically crying to Hashem and saying, The, the wicked get away with everything, and the righteous are the, are the victims here. Another, King David and Tillim says, Behold, these are the wicked, and they are ever tranquil. They have gained much wealth, and he said in the following to Pesukim, Surely I have purified my heart in vain, and washed my hands in cleanliness, for I was afflicted all day, and my rebuke came every morning. Another prophet in Malachi related about the people of his generation. They also tempt God, and they have nevertheless escaped, and there are many other similar Pesukim. This question of why the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper is a recurring one throughout Tanakh. Yet, while the Nevi'im asked the questions, they did not offer a response. That explains the reason. This is because the reason that a particular righteous person is tested with poverty and a particular wicked person experiences good in this world is different for each. So he's saying here that basically this question, this age-old question is talking an age-old question. It goes back as far back as Tanakh, where it's asked right off the, the bat, why is it that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Yet we don't see any clear answers. And here he says it's because there's every situation is a very particular situation. So let's see the, the commentary in the bottom. It's different for each. Bottom of 92. Were there to be one guiding principle explaining God's judgment of the world, then, quote, the prophet, end quote, would have surely shared it. However, since individual cases differ, the Torah tersely states that this question belongs in the category of the hidden things belonging to God. Each person's story is unique. God judges each according to his status, and the reason for each person suffering on prosperity is completely different from that of the other. The point is that human beings have limited capacity of understanding and cannot understand the ways of God. So, bottom line is, is that while the question exists and continues to exist, there's certainly no answer in, 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 in Tanakh for it, because every situation is very different. Continuing on top of the page of 93, Therefore, the matter is merely commented on in general terms. When it says in, in Sefer Dvarim in Tanakh, in Torah, that the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things apply to us and to our children. Similarly, it says in by Shleim HaMelech in my favorite book, Ecclesiastes, which is Kohelas, which I don't know how in God's name they got that word for Kohelas. I really, it's one of my big pet peeves. I don't know how Dvarim becomes Deuteronomy, why we can't just write Dvarim in English. It's no easier to say Deuteronomy than it is to say Dvarim, D-E-V-A-R-I-M, is just as easy to pronounce as D E U T O R. It's actually easier. So I've got to like I've been looking for an answer to this as to why the the, the Jewish publications still translate the Hebrew um, words for Tanakh into the English counterparts, which I don't know for sure. I'm not a child of history, but I imagine has some sort of Christian uh, Christian um, influence from when they were doing the the um, the translations way back when. I'm happy to be wrong about that because it drives me nuts. So if anyone has any feedback, you know, do provide it. But anyways, it says in, in Kahelas, if you see oppression of the poor and deprivation of justice and righteousness in the province, wonder not about the matter. 
And as the Pasuk says in Deuteronomy, also known as Dvarim, the deeds of the mighty rock are perfect, for all his ways are just. These Pesukim state that the ways of God are fair, but really it's beyond our ability to understand them. So it seems that uh, open and closed, he's gives, he acknowledges, Chavis Havavis acknowledges the fact that why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer is a great question, been asked for thousands of years, but he seems to say that we got to put it to God. It's one of those things that we have to just lift our hands and give it to Hashem because we can't explain it. We don't understand His ways. And ultimately, how I always understood it is, no matter how much we try to explain the fact that God is there and how God works, you first have to start off by understanding. You'll never understand how God is there and how God works. Now let's try to understand how God is there and how God works. So it seems like we're going that direction, but no. We'll continue on the top of the page, 93, middle of the page. We continue. Reasons why the righteous suffer. Notwithstanding the above, the author offers some explanation as to why we sometimes find that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. So he does make an attempt to explain um, something that we can take away. Nonetheless, I've seen a need to explain this matter, why some righteous people suffer while some wicked people prosper, in such a manner that the explanation should be somewhat sufficient. I will say that the reasons why the righteous, righteous person's livelihood is withheld from him until he exerts himself to obtain it and is tested in it is as follows. Number one, it could possibly be because of a sin that he committed previously for which he was liable to be punished. As the Pasuk says in Mishle, behold, the righteous man will pay for his sins on earth. Although there seems to be no reason why the righteous should be suffering, it's possible that the righteous person has previous sins for which he has yet to be punished. Two, top of 94, there are some righteous people who suffer in exchange for increased reward in the world to come. As it's written in Deuteronomy, in my favorite, Dvarim, to benefit you in your end. Sometimes God desires to give a person a greater reward in Olam Haba than he otherwise deserves. God does this by causing him to suffer in this world, which causes him to deserve a greater reward in the world to come. And in this instance, the righteous person's suffering is not a form of punishment at all. Rather, it's a display of God's love towards that person. So he gives two reasons so far. The first is because it could be he did something wrong previously. And the second is, is that it's actually not only not a punishment, it's a massive favor because this will bring the righteous person and who else understands the 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 value of Ayman Haba like a righteous person, like a tzaddik, he gives him the ability to go straight there after 120 because whatever needs to be dealt with is dealt with in Ayman Haza. Number three, there are some righteous people who suffer to show other people the level of tolerance of his suffering and his good demeanor in the service of his creator so that other people can learn from him as we know from the story of Eov, of Job. This Verse shows for the possibility of a righteous person enduring suffering as a result of the sins of other people. It's in the note, it's saying about a, a verse. I don't see the verse, so maybe that's a typo. But the idea here is, is that people can see that, wow, look at this tzaddik is going through some type of, of difficulty and how he's holding on and he's staying upright, etc. And it inspires others. Four. There are some righteous people who suffer due to the wickedness of the people of their generation, and the Creator tests him with poverty, want, and illness to demonstrate to others his piety and service to Hashem. 
This is in contrast to those other people who don't serve God despite their peaceful lives. As the Pusik says in Yeshayo, indeed, he bore our illness and carried our pains. So this, of course, is that he should be an example um, to others, that even though he doesn't have everything that he needs to, he is continuing to serve Hashem, while those who do, unfortunately, do not when those are the situ- when the situation calls for it. The Pasuk is discussing Mashiach, who will endure suffering as a result of the sins of the people of his generation. Just as Mashiach suffers for their sins, the righteous suffers for the sins of his generation. And last but not least, number five, there are some righteous people who suffer because although righteous in their private lives, they are not zealous for the sake of God in protesting the sins of the people of their generation. As we know from the story of Eli, the high priest, and his sons, about whom the Pasuk says in Shmuel, and it will be that everyone who is left in your house will come to prostrate himself before him for a silver piece and a morsel of bread. Eli was punished with poverty because he didn't protest the bad behavior of his kids. So as we will stop here, in the middle of page 95, and as some people will joke, um, you know, this sounds like the uh, a 1% problem or a first world problem. Um, this is Sadiqim we're talking about. So when you think about this in the context of um, one who is not a Sadiq, as I will publicly state, I am not, um, it's a little, you know, hard to apply this to myself. And if I did apply this to myself, this would really undo the concept. But we are talking here about righteous people, about Sadiqim, people whom should not have to work for anything because their level is there. They should not have to make an effort for their livelihood, but for some reason they do and they suffer because of that, whatever it might be. And here's an insight into the world of Atsadik. And, um, you know, while it's not a direct correlation, and God forbid am I tr- not trying to, um, I was at a Yudshvat for bringing this past Shabbos in Parkland, and, uh, you know, one of the, the, um, things that Lubavitchers like to do, at least in the context of this conversation that we were having by the Fabrengen was, you know, try to, you know, psychoanalyze the Rebbe and, and try to understand everything. And really, you know, the humble opinion of this individual, and I, I second the notion, it's really not our place. And we are not ever going to understand. But if you can see a, a person or have seen a person or watch the videos and read the stories and connect to this to the to the story of the Rebbe, I mean, he definitely for 40 straight years, not a day off, worked and suffered greatly physically, emotionally um, to lead the people, not just Chabad, but the world of Jewry, you know, worldwide, um, post-Holocaust to the next level of awareness to draw down the, um, you know, the spiritual energy, or I should say draw up the spiritual energy from all the sparks that had fallen so low. And uh, you see how the man suffered greatly. Um, you know, he stood literally physically for hours giving out dollars towards the end of his uh, Nesias and even in the beginning as a, as a young, younger man who himself, him and his wife didn't have it easy. They obviously did not have children. Um, they suffered, their family suffered in World War II in the hands of the Nazis. He was separated from his parents. His father died in, in, um, in exile. His parents weren't at his wedding, etc., 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 etc. So... Just an interesting insight into potentially why these things happen to Tzaddikim. Next week, we will continue by discussing why the wicked prosper per Chayvul Sovavis. Um, I want to wish everybody a wonderful week on this wonderful Yeshiva week. 
And um, hopefully this podcast goes with you and takes the actual yeshiva with you. God bless. Good night.